What's up, everybody? Welcome to A Yank and a Swede, a Premier League podcast. I'm your Swede, Sebastian Oren. With me is the Yank, Elliot Niblock. Elliot, how are things in uh, your neck of the woods right now? It's good. I mean, it's still, you know, hotter than hell in Charlottesville, Virginia. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the sunshine. Used to so many cold winters that I really can't complain too much, even when the heat index is over 100 with like 65, 80% humidity. But, mm, yeah. That humidity, yes. That's what yeah. really makes it insufferable at sometimes. Yeah, we got rain here now in Cincinnati, monsoon-like rain, so I would take your hellfire warmth every every day over this. Yeah. And I sort of did for a while when I lived in Arizona, so hey. Well, yeah, but that's at least a dry heat. The humidity is the thing that kills me. Like, when I lived in Montana, it would hit 100 over the summer sometimes, and there, you know, the wildfires would be the worst, but here it's just like... I walk outside and I'm sweating by the time I open the door to my car. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's basically living in a sauna. Yeah. No, saunas are dry, though. No, they're not. What yeah, kind they, of, well, it depends what on kind how of, much water you pour over. What kind of sauna have you gone into? It's not a real <laughs> sauna in that case. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I have would, never would, lived in Scandinavia, so I think I have to defer to the Swede on this one. Yeah, none of this weird, like, infrared stuff and... No, 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 no. A wood-fired sauna, heated rocks, you pour beer or water over it, depending on how you, you're feeling that day. You pour beer over the rocks in your sauna? Yes, or you can do vodka. Jesus, I feel like I haven't lived. Yep. <laughs> the vodka is uh that's a good one and will get you drunk quite fast but we're not gonna talk about a thing weird ways to get drunk uh let's talk about some football here and uh big big story this week has been kevin de bruyne and his knee injury suffered in training it looks like he'll be out for around three months which uh you know depending on how you see see it could be a very big blow for man city I sort of feel like they do have, you know, we were talking about the first episode here, cake on cake. Mm-hmm. It's sort of that situation. I don't think that it's going to be the end of the world for them playing without De Bruyne. I feel like they have good enough players as it is. But, of course, a player of his caliber will be missed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, he's one of the greatest in the world is a creator in the center of the park um, and has goals in him as well. I mean, I think that two things I'll say about this first, I think city and particularly pep are a bit lucky. It's hard to say lucky when you lose a player of that caliber for that amount of time, but nonetheless, in terms of just the amount of pressure that they're going to face, this happened behind closed doors, right? Because if he had gone down with this injury, match day one against Arsenal, then, you know, it would have been everybody up in arms about how you played him too soon after the World Cup and, you know, this was a terrible decision, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we really don't know. And the fact that it happens in training, I think, is going to take some of the pressure off. (laughs) Well, also being defending champions helps the manager in the press conference a little bit as well. Um, I mean, this is... this. Make no mistake, this is going to hurt City. Like, we've spoken... You know, week in, week out for not just, you know, the few weeks that we've had this podcast, but last season as well about how deep this city squad is. But 
the reason that they are arguably the best team in the world and arguably the favorites to defend their title is that it's not just that the depth of their squad, which is remarkable, but also that they have these rare talents who can elevate the team. And he really was the one, for my money, I think more than any other single player in the outfield 10 who elevated this squad to the trophy last season. And, you know, I mean, like you look at at how he, as I said earlier, not only creates, but also gets goals himself, you know, scoring. He scored 12 last season with 21 assists. And that kind of return is going to be hard to make up for, but not impossible in this team. Yeah, like you said, ever since he came back, really, he's been incredible, incredible. And yeah. he played a big, big part in their title win, of course. And we'll see how they fare. But I, they are lucky that they do have a lot of good players. And, uh, you know, perfect timing for Mars, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that it's also going to be even more so than Mares, Raheem Sterling, who honestly I, I think was really the the heartbeat of the team against Arsenal at match day one. And I think this is really, you know, this is the moment for him to shine. Uh, even though it's not the same position, uh, I think that, you know, there were a lot of people last season who said, okay, this is, this is going to be the year when Gabriel Jesus really puts his stamp on the Premier League and shows everybody that he is, you know, the the shall we say Mbappe of England at this point you know obviously not nationally but in terms of the domestic league and he, I mean, he had a great season but he did not clearly establish himself as the first choice ahead of Sergio Aguero which is difficult but you know kind of you, you need in order to replace again a special talent like De Bruyne it's not just who is going to specifically fill that hole in the team sheet each week it's how is the team more broadly going to lift themselves in his absence. And, you know, maybe we see more goals created from the wing from Mares, right? You know, maybe we see uh, Gunduan occupy positions a little farther forward than he would otherwise. Uh, but, you know, this is a team that certainly should be able to make up for his absence, even though he is a player of such astounding quality that, you know, most sides in not only England, but world football would not be able to replace a player of his quality the way City may be able to do. No, absolutely true. And Man City, let's just jump into their fixture here. They take on Huddersfield at home. That's a Sunday game. Kickoff is 8.30. And um, yeah, how do you... Is there any way Huddersfield can get away with anything here? I I would say no. I mean, even without De Bruyne, I I think playing their home opener, I expect. Wait, excuse me. Uh, yeah, yeah. Huddersfield on on Sunday. Sorry, I thought it was Saturday. Uh, yeah, I expect City to overwhelm them. Yeah, if we travel back in time, or it's not really back in time because it is in the future. But Saturday slate of games, Cardiff. At home to Newcastle. That's your early game. 7.30 a.m. kickoff. Is this a must-watch for you? No. No? 
<laughs> no, uh, it's not. I'll I'll be watching uh, Spurs play host to Fulham. I think probably at Wembley because they haven't finished their new stadium yet. Oops. Yeah, um, no, it's still Wembley. I mean, that's also a, a story that's been floating around. Uh, Spurs having a some troubles to find a new temporary home, a third arena as their Tottenham Hotspurs Stadium or whatever they're going to call it isn't totally ready yet. There's some... Wait, are they not calling it White Hart Lane? No. Oh god, that's ridiculous. I thought I I, I mean it's essentially in the same location. Nope. I think uh, I read it was Tottenham's Hotspur Stadium. Yeah. Uh but anywho. Yeah, no, you're right. It's Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Yep. Yeah, the the tube stop is White Hart Lane, though. That's funny. So I'm just wondering how this is going to work itself out. Um... I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm intrigued to see uh, how Fulham respond to you know kind of a disappointing match day one and playing a Tottenham side that looked really vulnerable on the road at St. James Park in match day one. And, you know, they're going to be kind of sort of semi on the road again. Uh, so I think it's going to be interesting. That's, that's really the first picture on Saturday that I'm looking forward to. Sorry, no offense to, you know, newly promoted Cardiff or Newcastle, who I just spoke positively of despite losing to Tottenham. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to need my beauty rest. I'm waking up at 10. (laughs) Yep. That is a 10 a.m. kickoff. And then uh, other games at 10 is Everton, Southampton, Leicester Wolves, and then West Ham against Bournemouth. But we're going to talk about the late game, 12.30 p.m. kickoff, Chelsea at home to Arsenal. Oy vey. <laughs> oh, God, what a season we've had to start, um, or what fixtures we've had to start, I should say. Uh, I... I can't imagine that Arsenal can be realistically hoping for much more than a point from this game. Um, I was a little surprised to learn from Unai Emery at his press conference the other day that he plans to start Czech again, who looked extremely uncomfortable playing the ball out the back in the style that Emery wants to play. Um, you know, that almost near horror show blooper reel own goal that we spoke about in our last episode. He's he, he's a veteran, right? He, he's not just a veteran. He's a legend. Um, but I, I have to wonder if maybe it, it's one of two things in my mind, and maybe it's some combination of the two. But on the one hand, Something from new signing uh, the German goalkeeper burned Leno in training that Emery sees that he doesn't like. Uh, even though in the exhibition matches I've seen, Leno looks more comfortable playing the ball at the back. Or maybe just some sense of, you know, Emery is not super familiar with this league and this is a player who used to play for Chelsea and so he's going with Czech for that reason. I mean, you know, I don't want to speak ill of the man and I also want to be clear that I don't begrudge his, you know, don't question his intelligence whatsoever because of this, but he's, he's new at speaking English and there's a clear language barrier when he's at the press conferences. And so it's kind of, you know, it's harder to understand. Uh, And it almost seems like double talk. In fact, when he was speaking about starting, 
starting check over Leno. He's like, yeah, check will continue. But if Leno starts, I will have faith in him too. You know, and it, it was it was a little confusing, but he seemed to be pretty clear that Petr Cech will be between the sticks. I I don't see Arsenal keeping a team a clean sheet in this game. That said, despite their three nil win over Huddersfield in match day one, Chelsea were not as convincing on the pitch as that scoreline would suggest, even though I think they deserved all three points. So, honestly, from an Arsenal standpoint, I'll be hoping for a 1-1, maybe a 2-2 draw, and realistically, I fear I'm expecting a 2-1 loss. Hmm. No, I mean, Chelsea, they looked pretty comfortable in their win. I don't... Well, you know, they looked they looked comfortable, but they didn't look dominant. Um and that's a funny thing to say when the scoreline reads 3-0. But I thought that yeah, in the in the first half, they they showed some moments of being a little shaky. Uh, but on the whole, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to see this Arsenal team that clearly works very hard. You know, they covered more ground collectively than any other team in the Premier League during match day one. Uh, so they, I mean, they are really trying to implement this high, this intense pressing style that Emery likes to play, but they don't really look comfortable in it yet. And it's hard for me to see us going into Stamford Bridge and taking three points from a team that even looked, you know, maybe not perfectly invulnerable in the way that we are right now. I mean, we just we need time to play into this style. You know, I think that. If Arsenal have zero points after the first two match days, a lot of fans will hit the panic button because let's be real, a lot of fans just seem to really enjoy hitting the panic button and getting angry. I mean, some people like getting angry and they use sports as an excuse for that. Uh, I'm not going to be doing that. Of course, I'll be disappointed and frustrated if after two games against major rivals, we have zero points. Of course, I'll be even more frustrated if we don't score a single goal, which is possible after 180 minutes of football but i'm i'm not you know i'm not hitting the panic button just yet on that front and i think that arsenal realistically could drop all three points in this match on saturday and still manage a month from now to have won every subsequent game but they really do need to get their act together and figure this style out because they need to be on the same page, and they did not look anything like that last week. Well, I mean, isn't that just a thing, too, that you're going up against, you know, some of the best teams in the league right off the bat? Yeah. You know, you got to have some form of chill, really. You can't... Well, yeah, but I, I mean, the thing But is like you said, pe- look... people like to, to complain. Yeah, and we didn't look bad against City. I mean, Arsenal, they, they were well beaten by the better team. That's disappointing. They're well beaten by the better team at home on the first game of the season. Deepens the disappointment. But, like, they created some chances in the second half. Uh, you know, there was one volley in particular by Lacazette after he came on that curled just wide of the post. That yeah, I mean, they, they, looked, they looked not yet totally gelled in this new style of play. But they weren't completely abject. I mean, you know, they didn't get run off the pitch with four, five, seven goals. I mean, they it, they could have, right? But we speak about performance and we speak about result. And yeah, they didn't get the result. Yeah, the performance left something to be desired. But it wasn't totally horrible. You know, this is not 8-2 at Old Trafford stuff. 
Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we'll see how it shakes out. Also on Sunday, Brighton and Hove Albion against Manchester United. And um, here is some, you know, is Pogba, is he in a feud with uh, Mourinho or no, they're pals. There's been a lot of conflicting stories here surrounding Manchester United and their star player and their grumpy manager. I mean, these these storylines are going to continue. Um, And it's because, I mean, Mourinho is going to feed them by a combination of his, A, love to be in the spotlight no matter what, B, tendency to harshly criticize his players. Uh, You know, I mean, he said that they they have no problems. He's never been so happy with him. Um I cannot ask more from him, he said, right? You know, he's playing well. But the the thing is that it's not merely Mourinho's tendency to kind of fly off the handbill. It's also at the same time, you know, a lot of these stories about dissent are sown from clickbait-loving journalists who aren't maybe totally worthy of the name journalist to begin with. And also they're often encouraged by the players, you know, the players' own camp, right, in terms of, wanting to kind of string along a narrative of dissatisfaction, no matter the degree of truth or untruth to that, just so in in case, in case that big money move seems on the table and then Pogba decides he wants that next summer, then you can point back to this or even like tell with next summer, right? Like if Real Madrid come and knock on the door and say, Hey, how do you feel about 350 grand a week? And he says, I'm pretty good about it. Um, I don't know. I, I think that that it's hard with these these kind of like, what's the relationship between the player and the coach? It's hard to know that unless you're either the player or the coach, <laughs> you know? Um, and even, even a lot of his teammates probably wouldn't be able to speak to that because a lot of what that kind of manager-player relationship comes down to are the one-on-one chats that you have, not necessarily even every training session, maybe not even every week, but those are what constitute kind of the, that relationship. And, and, you know, I mean, and the things that, the things that you say to your players when everyone is gathered together are different from the ones that you say when it's just one-on-one or just, you know, your back, your back line or what you say to the press. And I think that with Mourinho, it's always tricky because, yeah, he's he's a narcissist. He also likes to play games, but he also genuinely pisses his players off a lot. So it's too early, speaking of panic buttons, although I wish it wasn't, it's too early to hit that third season meltdown panic button at Old Trafford. I don't know if it is. We'll, we'll see. But as long as they win games, you can't really complain. That's the sad part. Yeah, well, that's been, I mean, that's been Jose since day one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oof. It will be a rough, rough season. I fear. I fear. Well, you. It'll be fine. You'll oh. be fine. Yep. Then on Monday we got Crystal Palace taking on Liverpool. Crystal Palace. They open up their season with a two nothing win on the road against Fulham, and Liverpool took a four nothing win over West Ham. So. Um, 
Yeah, sorry. I'm going to immediately retract what I just said in terms of it being a rough season because it's very likely that Liverpool win the league. <laughs> okay, I shouldn't say very likely. There's a high chance because I would st- I would put it at, you know, maybe 45 City, 44 Liverpool, and then the remaining teams a combined 11%. Well, now I gotta check the odds here. Uh, let's see here. It's got to be shorter for City just because they're defending champions. Although you know, it may have changed actually since De Bruyne's injury. It might be pretty much even at this point. Even though it's also that's way too early to say, but three months is a significant chunk of the year. Okay, so first and foremost, I'm on some British odds checker website, and they're using that weird. So City is eight over thirteen. Whatever the hell that means. Yeah, it's less not it's worse than even money. And then Liverpool are ten over three. Whoa. Huh. Boy, Liverpool are a much longer shot. Boy, if you li- if you're listening to this and you live in England, which would be funny because you're listening to a podcast about English football called Yank and a Swede, then you should take that bet. <laughs> and then Manu is twelve, Chelsea fourteen, Spurs sixteen, Arsenal thirty three. Yeah, yeah. 33 to 1 seems even generous. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's. Liverpool looked really good in their first game against West Ham. Crystal Palace, although I give Roy Hodgson a lot of credit, and we should say that they just signed a new deal with Zaha, which keeps him. Let's see, I think it was extended to 2023. So that's very important for that club. He had been rumored a move away from Sellers Park. Mm-hmm. So keeping him there is a big, big win for Roy and his men. But at the same time, I'm doubtful they'll have anything to say against Liverpool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they have to be really happy with that game against Fulham at Craven Cottage. And I think that that and Zaha are wins in and of themselves. Uh, but you know, I, I don't I don't see them getting anything from this match. So even a point would be a plus. There we go. Silver lining. <laughs> so last thing before we sign off here, um, there's been some criticism of referee chief Mike Riley. After uh, Bobby Madley decided to uh, not be a Premier League referee anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that the... Well, why, Seb, you, I've been talking a lot this show. Why don't you give me your thoughts on this right off the bat? Well, so I can agree with the criticism of uh, Mr. Riley, although it is coming from the former chief, Keith Hackett. But it's a worrying sign that they're losing referees in their prime as far as age-wise go. You know, they're all leaving before they really have to. So Hackett says that, you know, maybe the Premier League needs to look outside of the border to find some some good referees now. I mean, I... I'm not opposed to that idea. I'm not opposed to that either. And I think that that makes sense, obviously, also from our perspectives as, you know, 
non-English supporters of the Premier League, I've always found that kind of, that, like, close link between nation-state and league in which you're employed to be bizarre, especially considering the increasingly international makeup of the players on the pitch in the Premier League on the one hand, and also what appears to be a I'm just going to say it, a decline in the quality of refereeing on the other. You know, I mean, we've seen a lot of a, a lot of garish mistakes over the course of the last season. I think that part of this could be, if not totally solved, at least certainly mitigated by the use of VAR. Uh, I think that was on the whole, if imperfect, a uh, real positive at the World Cup this summer. And I would actually be surprised if we saw a 2019-2020 Premier League season without VAR being implemented. Um, I, th- I think that they're going to adopt it next year. Um, now, that said, that could also be an excuse <laughs> to say, well, now we've got VAR, so we don't need to spend money making sure we get work visas for foreign referees. It'll be fine. We can just continue to be kind of shit and let some of our referees in their early 30s go on to the prime of their career elsewhere. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm... it is a tough one. I mean, the FA is not exactly uh, doesn't exactly have a sterling track record when it comes to making sure that its rules are enforced fairly across the board. So I'm not holding my breath. No, that's true. And Bobby Madley. He was recently promoted to the FIFA officials list, so it's, um, it doesn't really say here in the article why he's leaving. So that would have been interesting to actually hear the reasoning. Why? Matt- yeah, well, I, I mean, I imagine that he'll be questioned on it and probably deflect those questions. But you know, if we hear more about this, you'll we'll let y'all know. Yep, that sounds good. Uh, anything else you want to mention here before we sign off, Elliot? Well, you know, we touched on, uh, before we started recording briefly, this idea that La Liga is going to play a game every season in the United States. And I've seen a lot of kind of what I find to be bizarrely impassioned responses to it, both on behalf of, you know, supporters of La Liga, wherever they may be, saying, oh, this is, you know, ridiculous and doesn't matter it'll be you know like uh uh two bottom feeder clubs playing one another i i don't actually think that's the case i mean we're not going to see el clasico in new york certainly not for you know many years even if this is extremely successful but it just it it makes sense and i wouldn't be surprised to see the premier league move that way in the future i mean you know look at the success that for example the nfl has had playing games in london and American football is a sport that doesn't nearly have the global pull of, you know, football in general and La Liga's teams in particular. You know, so I think that probably what we'll see are a lot of, you know, like, kind of top six sides playing minnow clubs. And it's going to be a way for the top six teams to say, okay, we'll fly to. You know, Miami, when they're done building the new stadium, we'll fly to Atlanta, we'll fly to New York, we'll fly to D.C., whatever. 
and we'll grow our brand and sell jerseys for Atletico Madrid. And on the other hand, for, you know, a newly promoted club, let's say, I don't know, is Mallorca even in the La Liga this season? I'm I not sure. I don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, a, a, a club that doesn't have a ton of extra revenue, then, yeah, sure, the jet lag that your players will have to face will be a minor cost in the face of uh, payday in terms of like, you know, getting all of those butts in the seats, even if they're there to see Antoine Griezmann and, you know, not uh, Rio Valencia or Real Batiste or something. So. Yeah. I mean, the, what does any NFL fans feel about the whole sending teams over to play in London? I mean, so it's hard for me to say because personally, I don't know, our, our listeners may not know this because we don't talk about the NFL much, but I grew up very close to Green Bay, so I am, uh, you know, died one of the Packers fan. Cheeseheads. I am one of them cheeseheads, uh, although I haven't owned one since I was about 14 years old. But, uh, but it's tricky because the Packers are so fiercely, you know, they're, they're so fiercely loyal to Lambeau but they're also owned by the citizens, right? So the shareholders meeting, they can vote and say, no, we're never playing, we're never giving up a home game. So, I, I mean, I don't mind it because they don't give up the home games. I mean, I would be interested to see them go play an away game, uh, but we would never give up a home game, so I don't care about it. I mean, I think that it's really the home fans that have to that would be frustrated by it, but at the same time, I kind of like the idea if and when the Packers ever do play at Wembley or I guess now they're going to play at Spurs stadium because <laughs> it's basically like NFL 2.0. Don't worry about it being an actual football ground. Let's kowtow to the NFL. But regardless of that choice, I think that I would love to fly to London and watch a Packer game one day and Arsenal the next. That would be great. you know. And I don't think that there's, I mean, you know, it's really the, the home team supporters that would be frustrated by it. But I think that actually NFL fans stand to lose a lot more than La Liga fans because, right, we play eight home games a season, maybe more if you're lucky enough to get into the playoffs and have home field advantage for one or two games. But the, you, know, you have so many more fixtures that you get to see. that. So like, I think that actually... If if my home team in the NFL is playing abroad and I have season tickets, but I can't necessarily afford to fly, although season tickets are so expensive that if you can afford that, you can probably get a flight across the pond. That you know you're losing an eighth of your games at home as opposed to losing what if you include all competitions like one fortieth of your home games. I guess home games specifically a twentieth, but you know it's a it's a whole other order of magnitude. So. It doesn't really bother me. I mean, I have also not exact. I haven't made my peace with global capitalism itself, but I've made my peace the way in which sport is kind of at the mercy of that. So, hmm. yeah, I don't think it's going to happen to the Premier League. You don't think so? No. I I disagree. I really don't. I I, I don't know. I I they, think that they might I, well, take it upon themselves to. Sorry for cutting you off there. They might take it upon themselves. Instead of you know teams going on the international champions cup uh, during the summer, that the Premier League would actually be like, okay, you know what, half of the teams 
they go to North America, half of the teams, they go to Asia, play a little preseason no, tourney. No, because no, those are because those contracts are negotiated by the clubs themselves, not the league in which they play. So they wouldn't be able to kind of dictate it that way. So I I I just think that again, speaking of how, you know, uh, cash rules everything around me. They will watch what happens with the Liga very closely. And if, you know, if the data, which we are all slaves to data at this point, shows that they're making money, they're making a significant increase in money from both ticket sales and also brand growth. Like if they can, you know, they'll need a sample size of at least five years to do this, right? But if six years from now, they can see a significant uptick in the value of La Liga's brand in general and perhaps individual clubs' brands specifically in the United States, then I absolutely believe that the Premier League is not above that kind of a cash grab. Mm. Maybe. The other thing is that Apparently, I think it was the Times that had the story. There's a lot of hoops that they need to go through and able to make this actually come to fruition as well. Because U.S. US soccer could say no. The U.S. soccer? Well, U.S. soccer is also, you know, governed by greed, so. Yeah, but I... I is that really a positive thing for them to have La Liga teams come over and play? Positive thing for whom? For U.S. soccer. I don't think it's bad. Um, I mean, this is, you know, some supporters of MLS that I've seen being up in arms about this is like, you know, it's like, well, they can go to hell. All you Euro snobs. Euro snob. That's one of my favorite words. It's like, guys, you can't. I, I love the Timbers. I love the Timbers dearly. I watch the MLS playoffs every year. I watch as many Timbers games as I can. But you cannot tell me that the quality of MLS is even close to the Premier League. And if you tell me that it's roughly the same, I will laugh in your face. I love the MLS. Well, I don't love MLS. I like MLS. There are some good things about it. I love the Portland Timbers. I will continue to consume their product. I don't think that I, you know... Don't don't feed me nice, sharp cheddar and tell me it's brie. And with that cheesy comment, we're going to say goodbye for this episode. <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter. I'm Seb Norin. Elliot is Keats was better. And then be sure to follow one Yank, one Swede. That's number one. And then Yank. And then the number one again. And then Swede. So until next time, enjoy the football. Enjoy the weather. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.